What is up, folks? I've got a bit of a treat for you today. This is an Uno reverse card of an episode, so to speak. And I'm going to prompt it in a second, but I want to write a bit of a mini essay. I, I, I wrote something out. I want to share my thoughts on two concepts. So coaching, education, skill improvement, and a bit of a bonus episode here on the Repertoire Podcast to allow this episode to stand on its own versus just being you know, me reposting an interview that I did on your RSS feed. And so the way this kind of starts is is with a question to to you folks, to the audience. Do you know anyone in your life who, I'm going to call it, sits on their hands with things? They've maybe got some great ideas. They even maybe fall into the great idea lily pad area arena problem where they just kind of seem to jump from idea to idea to idea and they just never execute on anything. Do you know of anybody like that? What about someone in your life who just refuses to ask for help in their endeavors, in their projects, in improving themselves? Someone who spends just countless hours toiling away at something and would never in a million years read a blog post or pick up a book on someone who's already done it this way and who's who's shared their insights, especially, you know, take novel things in in, in one camp. But for someone, you know, if you're if you're trying to let's say for people in our industry, start a restaurant or open a bar, do you really think you're the first person to encounter the problems that you're encountering? So don't get me wrong, there, there are tons of virtues to both of these character traits, right? The person who is patient and is willing to wait for the right idea to come along. And for the other person, the person who is you know incredibly self-sufficient and can drive things forward on their own and who doesn't want to play the victim or who doesn't want to always, you know, ask others to do things for them. Those, the, 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 there's good sides to these coins. But for me, this idea to launch an educational company for chefs, and it wasn't even a company back then. I just wanted an educational product for, for chefs and hospitality folks. I found myself falling into some of these negative patterns. I would procrastinate. I would ruminate on the idea. I would create these excuses for why I couldn't do it right now or Now's not a good time. Those are things that I would tell myself. And then ultimately, I was scrolling Twitter and I saw a tweet from this gentleman, Yusuf, who I was following because he is a frequent guest on a podcast called Modern Wisdom that I listen to. And they do a whole life hack series. It's, it's a really great kind of series. If you ever want to check that out, I'll link that in the show notes of this episode. And so Yusuf, one of the gentlemen in, in, in this conversation who interviews me, he basically tweeted that he's giving free advice to coaches who want to go full-time with their work. So I saw this tweet, and I looked at it, and I was like, huh, as most of you know, I, I've done coaching in the past for, for you folks, for, for line cooks, for restaurant owners, but I, but I wasn't in fitness. And so I looked at this guy's handle, and I was like, let's see what this guy has to offer. I can take him up on it, and I'm, I'm, I've said it multiple times on this show before. I'm a big fan of taking things from other industries and adopting them for yourself, because chances are the problems that other people are experiencing, the lessons there can also be applied to what you're doing. So I was like, well, let's let's take this guy up on it. So I hop on a call. I shared a little bit about what I'm about. And I basically told they basically told me about the their program through their company, Propane Business. But there was a huge roadblock. And this is kind of problem number one. The price for the program was more than anything that I had ever paid for in an online course capacity. I had taken $50 courses. I had even taken $300 courses, but this was almost $3,000. And I was like, oh, I don't need that. I can do it on my own. 
again, I fell into kind of one of those camps that I mentioned earlier. And before I share how I made my decision, I want to share two popular schools of thought that I think relate to this and how I used them when I was at this crossroads and I was torn. And the first one comes from Tim Ferriss, and he, he talks in The 4-Hour Chef, a book that I've recommended a couple times, even though it is his least popular book of the 4-Hour series, so he says. And he talks about this idea of putting stakes around whatever it is you're trying to do or a habit that you're trying to build. So if you want to stop eating McDonald's and you tell yourself, okay, Justin, starting tomorrow, no more McDonald's, how well does that work? For those that are immensely intrinsically motivated, sure, it can work pretty well. You tell yourself you're going to go cold turkey. There's tons of stories of people who can just say that and then they just break the habit. But what if you printed out your credit card statement for your wife every month and she scanned that credit card statement and any time that she found a transaction from McDonald's, you had to pay $100 to an organization that you don't support every time that she finds one of those transactions. Same behavior change, stopping to eat McDonald's, different motivating factors. And I looked at this investment into this program in the same way. If I spend to enroll in this, that's a lot of money for me. And I'm really going to have to commit to this. It's almost like it became this positive wind at my back. Call it like a negative motivating factor, but it was positive. You got to show return on investment of this. Spend. And my competitive juices just started oozing right? I haven't been in school for, you know, coming up on 10 years now. And I haven't had this educational moment where I have, you know, a teacher mentor who I paid for their, you know, expertise. And, and I, you know, I get some, you know, not necessarily assignments, but it's like there's, there's an opportunity to over deliver to this person and almost impress them. And I was like, I want to destroy this after, you know, kind of coming to terms with that way of looking at this program. And secondly, there's this other tidbit that comes from this guy named Alex Hormozzi, who's making the rounds on Instagram and YouTube right now. I know that he has kind of been thrust into the limelight recently, and I do mention him in this conversation with Johnny and Yusuf. But he has this piece of advice that he shares that I, I, I didn't share in the interview. This is a new one. He says, before investing heavily in stocks or real estate or crypto, ruthlessly, what you should do is you should ruthlessly invest in acquiring skills. Because... The more skills you have, the more your earning potential increases. And that makes it possible for you to see higher income amounts, which then you can invest in much larger deposits if you're looking to grow your net worth over time. In other words, let's, let's frame this another way. Let's take an 18-month time period and picture two people. You have person A and person B. A way to remember this is person A is A-OK. -okay. They don't think they need any more skills. They say, nah, I'm good. I've got a job. I'm making money. New skills will just, you know, come along the way for me. As I'm getting experience, as I'm kind of spending time on the job, I'm going to get new skills just by osmosis, just by being next to people. Person B, on the other hand, takes a bit of a financial hit. They invest in themselves. They see person A, you know, investing their money or buying new gear or going out to dinners, and they say, nope. I'm going to be the Drake meme, you know, they're going to say no to the to the immediate gratification and they're going to point to new skills and they're going to be like, yeah, I want that. And these new skills might be video editing, food photography, writing, website design, getting a SOM certificate, 
spending time in, fr in, a, in a front of house, maybe, course. And sure, I'm going to be in the hole a little bit as person B because I'm going to have to spend money to acquire these skills. But now I can take this information and these learnings and these developments that I've had in myself, and instead of just being where I'm at now, I'm going to have more to offer to my next client, to my next set of customers, to my next employer. And what's fascinating about this thought exercise, remember I said 18 months is how we're going to observe this. So the first six months, by all metrics, person A is winning. The person who is A-OK -okay and isn't going to decide to develop any new skills. They've got more time. They've got more money because, and you know, maybe they're, maybe they're spending it, but if they're investing it, they've certainly got more money. And relatively speaking, the same capacity as person B, because person B has just started off on this journey. They don't have the skills well-developed yet. So person A is, is, like I said, they're winning. But something happens in six months after person B starts to develop those skills. And all of a sudden, that first sale happens for person B. All of a sudden, that first client books for person B. All of a sudden, the first post on Instagram or TikTok or YouTube that person B makes really gets some views and starts to get some traction. And now what's interesting is person B has feedback to work with on this skill because they've actually put it to work in the market. Now they can iterate. Now they can grow. Now they can improve on that skill because they just got started and they spent the time to get the development process accelerated by asking someone who has already done it to teach them. Alex Hormozzi, the guy where the second point comes from, talks about this idea of paying for someone to teach you something is literally buying time. It's the closest we can get to buying time. And everybody says time is the more valuable than money. And so therefore, this is actually the most valuable spend of your time, of, of your money that you can make. If someone's done the work of taking five years of knowledge, it took them five years to acquire and distill this information and they've packaged five years into a one-month program for you. You've technically just bought four years and 11 months worth of time. And even if you don't believe that math, I think you can at least agree that it's faster than trying to figure it out on your own. And so I took both of these mental models, stakes and paying to acquire skills. And I said, yes, I'm going to invest into this. That's where the Demi Skills course Genesis came from. And ultimately, that developed into total station nomination. And then ultimately, the entire company of repertoire came from this experience. I got real examples of how to set up this type of business from front to back. I learned how to find clients and customers and ultimately over deliver to those customers without scammy sales tactics, without, you know, uh, uh, growth hacky marketer style talk, just real time tested, just put in the boring work type of advice. And again, this was like in line with how I wanted to do it. And so that's another reason why I decided to say yes to this. There's a million ways to grow your business, but you have to find one that, you know, kind of you can reflect your values onto and things actually end up giving you positive feedback from there. But the most important part for me I was accountable to Yusuf for this entire process. I booked in, as I you know, enrolled in this program, I booked in a package that had extra calls with Yusuf because I, I, I'm self-aware enough to know that I wanted to have that little voice in the back of my head which would say, don't make this a waste. Show up to these calls 
with real shit to get feedback on. Take this orange and squeeze every last drop of juice out of it because you have this person's time. And when you hop on a coaching call, you need to over-index on getting the benefits from this experience. Almost be annoying with the amount of questions that you're asking and the amount of progress that you're able to show to this person. And so the long story short is I've already made my money back. That's kind of the punchline. Three to four times on this experience. And it's been less than a year now, I think, coming up on, you know, actually developing products and having them out in the market. And I literally got the clarity to, again, launch repertoire as a business on the back of this relatively small investment into my own skills and asking for help from a professional coach. So I couldn't be a bigger proponent of it. I think a lot of us, me included, see coaching or masterminds as this like money suck or this Ponzi scheme, which don't get me wrong, there's no shortage of slimy snake oil people out there on the internet. The internet has made it easier than ever to kind of take advantage of people or fake it till you make it kind of folks or flex in the wrong way or again, be a bit of a Ponzi scheme where you make a course for making a, for course creators who want to make a course for other people who want to make courses. But if the, the idea that in the core of this is if you find someone who has done what you're trying to do, I'm here to tell you that it's completely worth it to try to get the information extracted from them and then put it to work yourself. That's the other kind of important caveat with all of this. I didn't just take the course and, again, continue to sit on my hands. I wrote the course. I published the thing. I made it for sale. I charged people money. And, in fact, I think you can argue that you're actually holding yourself back if you don't take advantage of people who are sharing their knowledge. Because, remember, person A, who thinks they're A-OK, is probably going to be at the exact same place in 18 months because again, they're saying it. I'm fine. I don't, need, I don't need to experience anything more. I'm totally cool. Where person B is going to start to hit exponential growth in their progress somewhere around that time, or if not now, very soon in the future. Just because person B was willing to invest in themselves and put real stakes around change in their life. And so with that additional mini essay, preamble, whatever, Yusef, my coach, and his business partner, Johnny, asked me to come on their podcast. I was truly honored to have the opportunity to do so. And I really enjoyed the fact that neither of them are in hospitality, and they ask some really cool questions about my background. And the interview starts in kind of a fun, you know, jokey way. They have a great sense of humor. And I share some insights that I've never shared anywhere else on this interview, at least not in one episode. I've shared these anecdotes across, you know, Ask JK episodes or, or you know, little anecdotes on YouTube or on Instagram Live. But this is all kind of packaged into one place, which is kind of cool. So the last point for me, if you want to get in touch with the Propane Business Guys, this is not sponsored. I get no kickback from this, but links are in the description. Even if you don't work with them in a professional capacity, their free content is both super valuable and also hilarious at times. As I said, I love their sense of humor. And if you're into nutrition, fitness, sleep, meditation, online productivity, you should absolutely give them a follow. All right. That's it from me. Let's talk to Johnny and Yusuf. Welcome back to the Grow Your Online Fitness Business podcast. And today, in the order of talking points of fitness, we have Justin Connor, 
who is a chef. <laughs> and the reason that we wanted to bring him on is that he is an absolute ninja who we've been working with to help him package his offer and, and scale his, his knowledge, really. And the reason we wanted to get him on the podcast is, number one, because he's an absolute G, and number two is that there's a lot that you can learn from him in terms of taking your passion, taking your expertise, finding what problems someone who is earlier on in that journey faces and building a solution for that. So, Justin, thank you for coming on. You both are legends as well, and I really appreciate you having me on and all the help that you've provided and happy to share whatever I can with your with your listeners. Just just working with you and speaking to you, like I've learned so much from you and you really raised the the standard in terms of seeing what's what's possible with some of these systems. So it's it's really good to see. So I suppose the first very important question is would you rather have a five minute three course dinner or a five hour five course dinner? I have had five hour five course dinners. I mean, it's not technically five course. I'll say like seven, seven course maybe. And if the company is is right, and, and even if it's not, I actually, when I was in culinary school, I was a huge fan of eating alone because nine times out of 10, especially if you're in the industry, people from the restaurant will start to come and talk to you and just out of curiosity because they think you're a food reviewer. Like they think if you're sitting there by yourself and I would sometimes bring my camera because I was just a, a nerd back then. And th again, that totally gives off food reviewer vibes. <laughs> and you can actually have a fantastic experience at a restaurant. And, and then what's cool is, and I think Tim Ferriss talks about this in 4-Hour Workweek, or maybe it's 4-Hour Chef, when he talks about how to become like a super regular at a restaurant and just get like insane tables and free cocktails sent here and free desserts and whatever preferential treatment he's just like make friends with the staff like just be friendly with the people that are there and i think i could accomplish a lot more in a five hour five course because i'm also not a huge fan of uh, so another fun fact for your audience that's probably too much information i can't burp uh like i physically can't burp and so three courses and what did you say five minutes would be a little uh would be, be a little much rapid fire that's <laughs> a very i wouldn't have thought you'd come at it from a networking perspective mm -hmm. but that's uh, that's pretty cool we've, we've actually yeah. seen that happen in real life so i was in a restaurant in london and i can't i can't remember the name of the chef you'll probably know his name it's called like jean paul something or like mm. he's a very famous tv up. french chef um i'll find the name and i'll, I'll try and edit it into the podcast what's that that's a <laughs> just a very a generic very, name isn't it? yeah it's a very yeah, i was just gonna well, say that <laughs> it's it, is it like, jean paul gautier the french fashion designer or is it oh, Jean-Paul no. Sartre, who's a French playwright? No, it can't be Jean-Paul then. Is it Jean-Paul He's a really Belmondo. big name. He's like, he's, he's like Gordon Ramsay level famous. And he was sat on the table next to us. And I didn't know who he was, but my girlfriend was like, oh my God, that's like Pierre, whatever. Or, um, And you could tell the staff were like quite stressed around him. And I, I'm sure he was just out there to like have a good night, have a good meal. But I had the same experience at a place called... Um, Oh my goodness, why can't I remember the name? It's it's a Rick Bayless restaurant in Chicago. And so Rick Bayless is like legendary, multiple James Beard award winning chef in Chicago who does a lot of Mexican cuisine. And he had the same thing. My wife now, we went to go eat there and two tables kitty corner to us was Rick Bayless and his wife sitting and eating, which I haven't heard amazing things about Rick Bayless as like a manager. And I can imagine the staff was just like completely like... Ugh. 
that that whole entire night but we had a we had a great meal so from a from a food perspective you would you still rather the five like it's five courses and five hours i'm not slightly on the threshold of too long right um yes and no i mean five hours can be so what's funny about there's a um i think it's nine courses there's a video on my youtube channel of a restaurant in australia called bray and that was coming up on like four and a half hours and what's fascinating about a meal like that is by the time you get to dessert you're starting to get hungry again because it's been so long <laughs> like you're just like you're consistently just eating and it's a tasting thing right so it's like you're, you're trying to eat a variety of different things and that's also like when i talk about i have a really that's actually one of the hardest challenges in menu writing for me now is trying to come up with a three-course menu because i just have more options in a five or seven course and it, it's so much more work and and time and and you have to get like obviously increased increased plateware to serve the stuff on but like i just feel like i give the opportunity for more cool tasting experiences like i'm, I'm just a huge the, the the phrase gastronomy has really fallen out of style i think with our generation before we turn the mics on yusuf was wearing a heel shirt which is just like the complete opposite of <laughs> the antithesis uh, it's yeah it's your, your enemy isn't it yeah and, 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 and seen the meals there's nothing wrong no i haven't i haven't Oh, Justin, don't. No, no, it'll, it'll, I wouldn't say that. Oh, no. Either, <laughs> it's, it's dry, yeah. it dried, like, plant-based things that you uh, should add water to. Uh, but the, Speaking of which, yeah, we have another question for you. Please. And I, I'm really interested in this one. So we're asking a professional chef here, just for, for context. Would you rather, for all the food that you could eat in the rest of your life, rather that it was brown soup but had the most incredible tastes or it was sublime textures but very weak taste mm. what a great question Yusuf that is a great question um, <laughs> I think I would rather have the one that tastes better I think and this is only because I have these two frame because man evaluating food is so hard it's such a subjective thing the three of us could go out to dinner and two of us could really enjoy a presentation one of us through an experience we had in our childhood or a weird genetic thing I, i'm sure you guys know like if you have the genetic thing that makes cilantro taste like soap like this is not going to be a good experience for for one of us at the table if we have that and so the two metrics that i tried to institute for myself for evaluating food that were as objective as possible is flavor and execution. And as I think about like, where does texture fall in, in either of those, it falls more in the execution side of things. But yeah, I think we've had that happen potentially with pandemic where you get takeaway food or, or delivery food to sent to your place. And by the time it gets to you, it you know, even if the texture is not all that good, like if the flavors are there, you're still excited to eat that. But if the opposite mm. was the case, I don't think you would be all that. Like if you well, had some kind of like space age foil wrapped thing to kind of like present your, I don't know, your samosa like perfectly crispy, but like the filling inside was just lackluster. I I, I have a hard fact, time believing. Yeah. I, I would say pandemic times produced both of those options because if, uh -huh. if someone had the anosmia from mm -hmm. getting COVID and then that's true, that's true. The, the tasteless version but that's a that's a strong answer mm -hmm. are we not sort of like genetically wired to like crunchy things 
No, we, we are. So there's a great article that maybe you guys can link in the show notes. So there's a chef in Copenhagen named Rene Redzepi, and he runs a phenomenal restaurant called Noma, which was like multiple number one best restaurant in the world. And he has a very niche TED Talk where he talks about crunchy <laughs> as a specific fl- uh, descriptor for food and why we are so wired to enjoy it. So French fries peanuts, tempura, chicken wings, like all of these little things. And, and it has something to do with the way that, th- that when it hits your tooth and when you chew on it, it like vibrates through your bones. And you, it's actually very satisfying for us as humans. And again, super niche. I'm, I'm sure you guys can find it. I, I don't actually even remember the context of it, but it was a rabbit hole that he went down and just completely made a ted talk style keynote presentation on it because i think he was just so and this was when he was popping up in japan and so he was finding all of these kind of like really cool textures to play with but yeah crunchy is that word specifically and i'm glad you said it is like i learned a lot from that ted talk because it was like oh cool yeah, just, and and yeah they're lovely aren't they crunchy things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like that it. i think that's what i that's the only reason i'm hesitating with the brown soup option oh the brown soup yeah. this is ne- never any crunchiness Mm-hmm. Unless you put crunchy that's bits, true. so you can put that's crunchy true. bits in the brown soup. You stuff that's I'm sold. I'm in. I'll do that. I'll <laughs> okay. the brown soup. You'd have to like forage for some kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's difficult. Tin foil or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we've settled that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> On to. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about your your journey, Justin, and and what you're doing now? I grew up in a. 1500 person town in the midwest where pizza and wings and burgers was again like the high end of gastronomy there was not a nice restaurant the place that i first worked at when i was in high school i basically made the decision that i was going to go to culinary school and i had a 4.0 my junior year when it was time to go apply for universities and i was really on the fence about it and i had a great high school counselor who was just like well you could get into these nice schools, but I don't necessarily think that's what you want to do with your career. And cooking just had enough of the, it allowed me to travel. It allowed me to work with my hands. It allowed me to work with people and those kind of like, and it allowed me to be creative, but not be a starving artist. Like I had seen enough examples of there are people who have built food businesses kind of came up in the Food Network kind of era. I saw that there was like media empire possibilities. Not like I set out to to do that explicitly, but, um, and it allowed me to get the hell out of that little 1500 person town that I grew up in. And so I, uh, my last year of high school, I did half of my day at high school and then half of my day at a local technical college who had a culinary program. And I don't think I tell that story all that often, but it was because I was like, oh, so gung ho on, and I had completed all my credits in high school. So I was like, okay, this is, I don't, I don't need high school anymore. Let's move on to the next thing, which was culinary school for me. And I worked at a little tiny restaurant. It was me, the head chef and a dishwasher. That was like my first job. And it was, they called themselves a world bistro because we basically had free reign when we did that to do, you know, riffs on Indian food and Italian food and Japanese food and whatever we wanted to do. And so that was a really cool experience. I then went to the Culinary Institute of America, which is in upstate New York. It's like a Hogwarts for food, like 
comically elaborate campus and and I say Hogwarts because there's like one distinctive day that I can remember where you just walk in and and Christmas decorations are up and it's like there's wizardry that's happening because the day before there was nothing and all of a sudden you just walk in and uh, but yeah it, it was cool because that environment was every single person at that university is studying food it's not something where you go to a university and some people are studying business and some people are studying finance and some people are studying uh, marine biology. Everybody at that school is either a baking student or a pastry student. And then from there, there are bachelor students who are trying to you know, do culinary arts management and, and stuff like that. And so when I was there, all my kind of uh, colleagues or, or peers were drinking beer and playing video games on the weekends. And I knew that I had one year of school, then we would do a six-month externship, and then another year of school. And I knew I wanted to get a good externship. And so what I would do instead of hanging out with other college kids is I would take the train down to Manhattan, and I would do what's called a stage, which is like a one-day, it's kind of like a working interview, where you just basically get to spend the day in a kitchen and your the, the the exchange that's kind of implied is I'm providing free labor. You will let me come and see how everything happens behind the curtain. And so for me, when I knew that I wanted to have a nice fine dining restaurant someday, uh, I quite truthfully I wanted to go back to the Midwest and open a three Michelin star restaurant in Chicago. That was the goal that I set for myself. I knew that that was that was my north star that I was pushing for. And I was like, okay, what what is the what is where's the how am I going to fill this gap between like where I'm at now, where the only experience I have is at this little tiny bistro, and I'm seeing chefs like Grant Ackett's and Farhan Adria and Thomas Keller and uh, Dominique Crenn and and all these people who are like executing amazing feats of of just leadership and creativity and, and operations and, and all this stuff. And, and I was like, okay, so I need this experience. And so I traded my time for it. Uh, that led to an externship at Per Se, which is Thomas Keller's three Michelin star restaurant in New York. Uh, completed my culinary school and I'm going to bounce quickly now. I went to Chicago to a restaurant called Grace. So I was on the opening, I was the youngest member of that opening team. I was like 19 or 20 years old uh, on that, uh, when that restaurant opened and they went on to earn three Michelin stars. They ended up closing because there was a lot of like shady business practices that were happening. And I think a little bit of falling out with the ownership. And so I called my old sous chef from Per Se, who was going to be the chef de cuisine of the French Laundry. So their sister restaurants. And I said, hey, I kind of don't like this Grace place. Do you have a job for me? And he was like, come out and stage and we'll see how it goes. And so I st- I went out, I staged at French Laundry and he offered me a job. So I worked at French Laundry. Um, I had a roommate at the time who was going to wine school and he was looking for his first job at a wine school. Me, this roommate and another guy who was half Norwegian, half American, we all worked at Per Se together. And this Norwegian guy was going to er- open his first place in Bergen on the west coast of Norway. And he was like, I need a wine director. He posted on Facebook. My roommate was like, cool, I'm going to go take this job. And I was like, see you, man. Like, maybe I'll come visit you sometime. And after French Laundry, I got pretty burnt out with like working in those high caliber environments. And I was like, okay, let's take some time off. And then I was like, okay, I really want to travel Europe. I can either go blow all my savings for a month or I can go work for this Norwegian guy for six months. And that's what I promised him. I was like, I can extend the time because I'll get paid for working with this guy and I can go to Copenhagen and London and Paris and do the European thing. And 
I stayed for almost three years and I ended up becoming a sous chef after 10 months and I ended up basically running that kitchen uh, up until I left and then I moved to Seattle, started doing pop-ups. Um, I'm skipping over like a little bit where I started creating content when I was at that restaurant in Norway because I was watching the kind of like Gary V, Casey Neistat. I had five weeks of vacation because I was traveling and so traveling is the easiest way to get excited about creating content because you have new stuff all the time. And so I would use that experience as like, okay, this is an excuse to get in the editing timeline and watch YouTube tutorials on how to edit. And yeah, so then um, moved to Seattle, started a podcast, uh, started doing pop-ups. Um, and that leads to kind of where I am now, where I'm doing a course for professional chefs um, to increase their performance. And it's called Total Station Domination. And yeah, Great I'm basically name. trying to, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm building a, um, a modern hospitality education company at this point in time because working with you guys, like I, I really kind of like cracked the nut and Pandora's box is open now. And now I'm like, okay, there's, there's a way to productize this. There's a way to create offerings for specific avatars that help solve their problems. And talk about a value discrepancy. There's I think that the numbers are t between $21,000 and $65,000 a year is what culinary school costs. And uh, you see it happening on Instagram posts and Twitter threads. Like the arguments, it, it's 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 not even split. Like it's very hard to argue that culinary school, hospitality school provides that kind of value. It's not that it doesn't provide value, but like twenty twenty dollars to $60,000 worth of value, probably not. And so that's what I'm trying to trying to solve. So is that is that is your course to replace that, or is it like a an add on? So they need that's to go been, there anyway. But then yeah, yeah. So that's that's what's been fascinating. So I started calling it the Demi Skills course because the whole goal Demi is the French word for half, and the place where that idea started was this is the other half of what they don't teach you in culinary school, and it was this kind of like intriguing thing of like oh I wonder what these skills are blah 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 blah. blah. And I would have a really interesting mix of students in the cohorts because some were taking it in tandem with culinary school. They were they would literally join the class from their dorm room when classes were out and they would just watch the live sessions with me and do all the exercises and ask questions. And then I would conversely have people who would join the cohorts who were not in they had never taken culinary school. And so then I started to get these questions of like, oh, well, can you teach me these things that so-and-so in the cohort is talking about from culinary school because I didn't go to culinary school, but you did and you know this stuff. So can you teach it to me? And it was like, okay, well, this is really interesting. So I had two choices. I could either continue building Demi skills to be like Demi is getting larger. And now it's like this all encompassing half quote unquote, or I could kind of like switch everything over to a brand that is much more in line with kind of like teaching skills that, uh, and again, it's it's not something that's genetic. I don't believe that uh, anyone is born this kind of like high performing chef. I think all of us kind of learn these skills. And once you kind of wrap your head around that, where it's like, oh, the only gap here is skills and those skills can be taught, then it becomes something, again, Pandora's box is a little bit open there. And so the goal is to create something where you can almost come to the company's page and build your own kind of like program based on, okay, cool. So I, I'm, I'm starting here. Uh, I, I think kitchen fluency, which is kind of like the beginners kind of thing that I'm, that I'm uh, creating is the first place where I want to start. And then 
as I get to this place where, okay, now I'm starting to be entrusted with the responsibility of running a station, now total station nomination makes sense for me. And then we get later on and it's like, okay, now team and project management is what I'm constantly thinking about. So maybe there's something that I can also come and find. And it's 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 almost like that just in case information just versus just in time information uh, that I don't remember who talks about that. But yeah, I, I think that's that's a much more. And again, it's it's I have zero interaction with my culinary school since graduating. But what? How cool would it be if you could continue to have an interaction with the people who are providing your education and you're getting updates on the content, all of the stuff that's happening in cohort-based courses right now? Mm. I think it's just so ripe for uh, just. I, I don't. I don't even want to use disruption because it's like just provide a better alternative that tracks better value to the money that people are spending. Well, it's it's extremely disruptive. <laughs> I mean, you you mm. you have clearly really been in the trenches. Like even your description of culinary school, I'm like, whoa, okay, you're like you're there for pastry or you're there for bakery. Or like ignorantly, I didn't realize that it went that deep and that specialized so quickly so i suppose what you're doing is this is a mature product or a semi-mature product by this point and it's really based on compressing years of experience and culinary school and and cash and everything into something which can get someone a, a serious result and in the process it's kind of subtly saying well you know what the roi on culinary school really isn't that good but here's how to fast track it so what what you did and, and interestingly you said you started doing the kind of selling the sawdust making content early on just as a kind of exercise almost um at what point did you start to say oh, okay i'm gonna i'm gonna monetize this or i'm gonna turn this into a, a content machine and personal brand i came up through the time when youtubers would put out content for free and everything's for my audience and it was almost cool to brag that you were on YouTube social media and you were not monetizing your thing. And that's cool when you have 100,000 subscribers. But the second you hit 500,000, a million, two million, the offers that are coming to you are a little bit too good to turn down. Sorry, guys. That and <laughs> artful mute. You managed to. That was so for, very, was for those impressed. listening. <laughs> Justin managed to simultaneously mute the mic, sneeze, and then return to unmute. And so apologize while he was doing it. <laughs> apologize with the other hand while he was sneezing. With <laughs> fantastic, like a magician. Just the <laughs> what I was always fascinated with with those social media creators is that they would get to this place where they would have to apologize to their audience for wanting to monetize the thing. And so I, I, I saw that, I, I observed that behavior and how that video would come out where it would say, hey, we're starting to take on sponsors or we're starting to monetize the community or we're starting to put out merch. And the comment section just ripped them apart. You said you'd never charge us money. You said you'd never monetize this thing. You said this would always be for free. People are so entitled and, with that stuff. Totally, like totally. And so I, I when I started- channel just for the, for yep. the shits and giggles. Like, what do you think this is for? Yeah, so yeah. I- but there, there's a there's a paradox here. So I got to that place where I was like, okay, well, I, I'm not going to ever say that this is explicitly for free. I started a Patreon way earlier. I think I had like 500 subscribers when I started a Patreon. Like I never wanted my audience to think that I was never going to eventually monetize this thing. I never promised that I would never do sponsored content, any anything like that. And, but, but, but here is the, the issue is that 
I got to this place where I grew the channel to this place where I was explicitly trying to either get people to pay for a kind of like Patreon style support the creator style thing or sponsorship deals and, and, and a little bit of affiliate income. The problem with affiliate income for, for chef stuff is that like, and I have this because I was going to give you guys some life hacks at the end. Like this spatula is like $6.99, $6.99. The affiliate income I get on that is not even close to if I was like to get this like tech YouTubers who do affiliate style businesses and you're, they're making like, you know, $1,300, $2,500, $3,500 purchases like that affiliate income is great. But yeah, it's like unless you can get a million people to buy a spatula. Totally, you know? <laughs> totally. And it's like my audience is not that large. And so I was like, OK, I was getting to this place where you go off of the kind of like popular marketer like passive income like ways to monetize your content style list and it's like okay uh sponsored content google adsense i wasn't getting millions and millions of views affiliate income uh and then and then there was this one that i that i was looking at and i was like well i haven't really tapped that yet and this was like ebooks courses stuff like that and so i started to look through all of the options skillshare udemy teachable all of these uh seth godin was doing the alt mba at the time and the cool thing was I like I had hours and hours and countless comments of people asking me questions of things that they were struggling with because I was just putting out this content because I was interested in a couple things like keeping my network growing because I wasn't working in restaurants anymore. I was doing pop-ups at the time. And so I was getting all these questions and I was like, okay, well, and, and then simultaneously, Tiago Forte and David Perel were just kind of like really getting into it with launching cohort-based courses where they were charging high ticket, they were packing a ton of value in, and they were kind of working in these seasons where they would do like put out a bunch of free content, but it's in service of this larger thing that's super high impact. Uh, it's not just a bunch of videos behind a paywall. And that was part of what I think skyrocketed my progress so much is that um, Alex Hormozzi talks about this idea of like your free stuff being better than other people's paid stuff is actually a huge competitive advantage. And that's what I was effectively doing because I didn't have the knowledge of how to create productized service, create a course. I was just like, let's make a video on the three things that I wish I knew when I was setting up my station when I was a line cook. And it was like, oh, cool. Like uh, uh, these are these are things to keep in mind when you're creating a menu from start to finish. And how, again, as we were talking earlier, layering textures and different flavor uh, uh, nuance and, and all those sorts of things. And so... I got to this place where I was like, okay, cool. I can create the valuable content, but do I put everything just behind a paywall and call that the thing? Or does this, is there another way to kind of do this? And you guys, again, through talking about creating challenges and um, really nailing in on who your specific avatar is and creating products just for them, like there's a ton of value that came from that process. And now I'm finally in a place where I have this audience and I have a product to offer them. That was the biggest frustration up until probably like 18 months ago where I was like, I had the audience, but I had nothing to sell them. And and if I was selling them stuff, quote unquote selling, it was like driving traffic to other people's businesses. It was like, hey, go buy this knife, go download this recipe software, whatever. And so that's actually a really good feeling that I've come to now. It's something that I, I wonder about like every every youtuber everyone with a big instagram following like they all monetize that audience by selling like something else 
Yep. Um, yep. But I suppose like you're in a, a slightly unique situation in the sense that you were you were building an audience that was very specific with a group of people who, as you say, like you'd already identified this problem that they all had, right? Where their training was insufficient and um, that really to, to progress in their career, they needed something else. So it, even even in that, like you were building an audience, but it was almost seems on purpose, I guess, like what you were doing. But it doesn't sound like it was. Like you weren't building that audience to sell them something. You built that audience because you found found it interesting and wanted to make content about it, right? Because you were traveling and there was the opportunity to. Yeah, and it's talk about like that's why I think total station nomination being my first quote unquote like big proper product where there's a cohort and there's um, like it has its own slug on the web page whatever you say you say about that. I had I could effectively make a choice when I started creating content because I had this kind of like kitchen management leadership kind of experience, and when you look at any of the brands that start to market online towards chefy kind of the culinary space they go for that audience the kind of like the per- the person in the perfectly starched chef coat who has their name monogrammed here and it says sous chef or chef de cuisine underneath their name because of course like in the probably focus groups that they're running they're saying oh everybody has these goals of reaching a management position which totally makes sense because you get increased responsibility your resume looks better there's usually a pay increase that comes with that you're not actually you're getting a little bit of time off of your feet like you're managing a little bit more and you're not so much like in the slog of being on the line but when you do i mean i had the experience in these places where you just do the math on one sous chef manages anywhere from like three to eight line cooks. And so it's like, well, I could go for the one or I could market towards the, like my total addressable market is so much larger if I just market towards the staff, like the like the line cooks, the chef de parties. Like I'm getting a five to eight X increase on my TAM just by going for the people who are, you know, just like in this smaller subsection of the staffing that's already in place at a restaurant. And so that was really interesting to me. But the problem was, it was like, not a lot of disposable income, uh, uh, not a lot of discernment into kind of like, what makes for a good educational culinary product, if it's not a big institutionalized culinary school. And so not to say that there's not a lot to overcome there. But again, if like, if I can just start with a better market, and not try to, there's, there's another guy who He's kind of a shady guy, so I don't even really want to bring him up. Bring him up, but he has a he has a concept called Sous Chef Academy, and I could have totally gone with that name because it's like it totally makes sense to try to want to become a sous chef because I'll, I just explained all these benefits that come with it. But why would you not try to go for the? I think the fundamental unit, uh, talking about like the atomic unit of a restaurant, is like the people who are responsible for the individual stations in that restaurant call them line cooks, whatever. And you see this when a line cook doesn't show up, the sous chef comes down in the brigade to work that person's station. That person doesn't end up showing up for work. It's not It's not like a knowledge worker job where Yusef doesn't show up one day and Johnny and I are like, okay, I'll take half of his stuff. You take half of his stuff. It's not like that. Like the sous chef, the manager has to come down and, and fit into that position in the brigade because otherwise service isn't going to happen. And so it's a very different kind of... Um, way way to work and so i thought about that and i was like okay so what if we created a product for that unit 
I think to, to check in with what you've done here as a, on a big picture is that you went and got expert experience. You mastered your craft. You got really good at that. And I think that's something that a lot of people try and skip because they, they want to get to the monetizing part. Um, so you were fucking good at that. And then you were like, right, I'm going to get a result for people. I've, I've identified what are the problems I had when I was going through training and what, what was missing. And you were like, okay, well, I'm just going to make content that caters to that, that helps someone who is a chapter behind me. And as a result, because you were just authentically doing that, you you built a very relevant audience. Plus all the other kind of, I guess what, what people would call unfair advantages of that you've got, you've got charisma, you've got very good production quality, you've got um, a personality that you can bring across into your videos. You're not super kind of clinical and polished, like you said, with the, the starched um, chef mm. shirt and everything. And I guess all of this kind of points to the importance of knowing your niche because I think one mistake that a lot of coaches make is that they try and you'll have a 20 the the, the trope of like 25 year old male personal trainer who wants to work with middle-aged single moms because they think that's where the money is and it and it's like well if you don't know anything about them then you're never going to be able to create content that's relevant to to appeal to them and you're fighting uphill, whereas you're literally creating for people who, for whom you are one chapter ahead. I had a fascinating conversation with a ex-colleague of mine. We weirdly ran into each other in the back of an Uber here in Seattle, and she transitioned from being a pastry chef to being a circus performer. So she's like, Whoa. does the aerial acrobats wild. Randomly ran into her in an Uber. And I was like, hey, I want to talk to you on my podcast. And I had a question that I posed to her, which was because her and I worked at Grace together in Chicago. And I asked her, I was like, do you remember what I was like at Grace? Because I do not have fond memories of working at that restaurant. Again, like I said, I was the youngest member of that opening team. They almost didn't give me the job because I had effectively zero experience coming out of culinary school. I had wor I had worked for six months at Per Se for free. And they basically were like, you haven't worked in a restaurant yet. Come back when you have a little bit more experience. This is very cutthroat, like uh, early 2010s, basically, when, it, and when restaurants were just like firing on all cylinders. And she was like, you were always so organized and always so whatever, whatever, whatever. And I was like, that was not my memory of this whole thing. And, and that, I think, is to pull on what you said, Yusuf, was, which was like, it's not just that you know how to do the stuff, but you also know what it feels like to suck at doing the stuff. Because that, to my core, like, I, I would get sent home, I would get told that my mise en place sucks, I would get told to do it again, I would get told that, uh, like, there's this common thing in chef culture where it's like, talk shit on your past experience on your current execution. And so it would be like, D is is Thomas Keller okay with this? Like, because I came from Thomas Keller and now I'm working here, and it's like so uh, okay. much just kind of like bashing. Yeah, people are so of, savage, in, so, in super savage, totally, totally. And so, and and quite honestly, I didn't do a good enough job when I was initially making content to express that I went through those trials and tribulations. It made me good at what I did, but I never pretensed any of it in the beginning of like, I really sucked at this thing. And so here's why I think that you would benefit from how I talk about this stuff. 
immensely oh, empathetic. So you, you made it look like you were a natural, basically. Yep, exactly, uh, exactly. Yeah. And and for better or worse, like that eventually ended up becoming the brand of like, oh well, Justin has everything buttoned up and together. When in reality, like the reason that I produce the content that I produce, and I'm only comfortable saying this now because I've come full circle with being able to productize it, is the reason I'm doing it is for the Justin that was in 2013 and just got sent home and is questioning his motivations to be in this industry and has no idea how he's going to ever make it to this place of owning a three Michelin star restaurant in Chicago. But there's this great aphorism that like, you don't want Michael Phelps to teach you how to swim because he's just a genetic freak. Like he just has it in his bones that he, he he's good at this thing. You want the guy who, and Tim Ferriss talks about this, the, you want this, the guy who Japanese previously, swimmer. yeah, who, who sucked at swimming, who was afraid of the water, who could barely get himself to get into the ocean, and now all of a sudden he can swim laps for whatever, increase, in, insert the time. And it's like, that's the guy you want to teach. And, and I, I kind of have flipped it to realizing that like, oh, this is actually a strength of mine, is that mm. I know what it feels like to suck. In profession. And I mean, really, just like you are the weakest link in the chain. Like, if this was Survivor, the whole brigade would have voted me off the island. Like, they so bad. I was so bad. And from that place, it was just like stacking skills under like reviewing the game footage in my head. Like, we didn't, we didn't tape ourselves, but like, why did you screw up that pickup? Like, why were you not set up on time? What is screwed up about your organization? Why can't you just get it together? And that's a lot of negative self-talk, but it's like it's built itself into this place where I feel like anybody who talks to me who says I'm really struggling in a professional kitchen right now, I have I can just like flip open the playbook and be like, yep, been there. Here's what I did. Here's what helped. Um, And just go from there. I want to link that back to something you said before we started recording about your like the course you're making and the feedback you've had. And I can't remember exactly what you said, but something like the, the insight you get from customers as they're going through the process with you of like what that teaches you to make and this it's something that we teach that a lot of people resist which is this idea of like pre-sell or or beta launch your product so that you then make the course and the coaching with customers because i think that the problem that everybody has whether they realize it or not what you were just describing is like we've all been in the position generally speaking we've all been in the position of like not knowing what something means feeling confused feeling overwhelmed you figure that stuff out, you forget about what it was like to not know that. And then these things start to become obvious and, and like second nature. And then you try to teach someone who's five years behind where you are. And you're like, well, obviously it's just this. And they're like, whoa, whoa, like I've got no idea. And people try to make products and courses and coaching for people who are more junior than them thinking that they can remember, but actually there's stuff that gets missed. So can you talk a bit about like, well, expand on that point. So you're saying, clients and customers are giving you feedback what are they telling you like what are you learning from this process of building stuff with customers a lot of it starts with where they're approaching the program from so have have they had a formalized culinary education are they the person who is what i call like the lurker because i was totally that person where i was Again, I I went to a culinary school in high school before I had any formalized kitchen experience. So I have been that person where you're just kind of like hoarding information because I will use this hollandaise recipe someday. I don't know when, (laughs) but it's like I'm told that this is a mother sauce and I should have this, blah, blah, blah. And or like it's an important French sauce. And that's an important place to start because 
ultimately that dictates kind of like where the questions are going to come from because because that that will set kind of like what have they heard and and part of it is potentially unworking bad habits like I had a student in the in the last cohort who was like oh I went to this culinary school and as a trade it was a trade school up in Canada and he was like oh for our practical exams they teach us to write our prep lists like this and I was like no 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 like like what here's why that doesn't work because I had to do the same thing when I was in culinary school and we can dig into it later if you want but it was like it was this frustrating unworking process of again asking why are you and and, and value for your audience here distill down what you're teaching into like what are the core pillars of this thing because i feel like a lot of people get messed up in kind of like the the painting on the pillars at the end and like this is the this is the thing that i'm going to teach but if you can get it, if you can distill it all the way down, and, and that's why um, I think I was working with Alex to land on the name of the Demi Skills course. And the reason that we landed on that is because it was like, as I was creating the, the material, I was constantly asking myself, what's the skill here? Don't just tell a story. Don't just reference an anecdote. Don't just talk about a tactic. Like, what's the genuine skill here that you're trying to develop? And then you can ultimately build some some material around that. But as I'm getting questions, that's why I think doing a cohort-based or maybe a coaching-based one-on-one-to-one or, or one-to-many maybe approach where you actually can get that real-time feedback of what, what are the questions that people are asking in that beta stage is so, so helpful because you start to see where people lose interest. You start to see where people become unclear. You start to see where you know things don't get talked about in your student community. And then it becomes something where it's like, oh, well, we need to either reword this or this isn't coming across right. Or to your point, Johnny, like I'm two rungs on the ladder above this person where I don't know what they're seeing down here. And I'm not I'm not distilling it. And like I'm, I haven't gotten to the core of it yet. And that creative challenge for me of like looking at all my slides and all my material and being like, is there a skill here? Have you gotten this down to the skill yet? Or are you just talking about the kind of like the technique or the last mile part of the thing that you're trying to teach? And you haven't actually distilled this down into a skill yet. And mm. that name for me was really helpful. Um, but yeah, talking about getting, building with the students, that's what ultimately, and, and I dug myself a hole with launching this as the Demi Skills and then getting to this place where it started to balloon and I was like, okay, I have to take this back and pare it down. But ultimately that helps me now because now I have the freedom to kind of you know branch out and, and do, do a bigger suite of products for, for customers. Um, but yeah, understanding where they're, where they're approaching the program from, what are potential bad habits they have to erase, and then have you done a good enough job of getting your material down to the studs and really understanding, okay, this is stable enough to build on top of. And then we can do the downloadable assets and the exercises and the case studies and the whatever based on this core idea. And any time that I haven't done that and well enough, it's really bitten me. So that's that's, yeah. that's what I'm learning. I'm really glad you mentioned that as well because we've got the journey from you've been through it at the time i imagine culinary school just feels like you're just being dropped into like a deep water and just trying to paddle and not really you know just trying to um, drink from a fire hose then you understand the problems and then you understand okay 
what are the where are these problems coming from and probably in with certain audiences they want the tactic and they don't really want the strategy but they don't realize that the tactic's not going to solve their problem and we always always have this problem we you know people will get in touch with us and be like oh what's the software that you're using for this or what like honestly it doesn't matter what the software is or what you know because if you haven't got a reliable mechanism to generate leads then you're pissing in the wind you're wasting your time so you you know th- what you've done there is you've developed conceptual integrity from just from pure experience of understanding what are the key driving principles what are the the pillars of my methods <clears throat> and then these strategies rather than tactics the kind of long-term big picture strategies are stuff that you share in a sequenced format in your paid program when people have bought into it they're like right i'm going to sit down i'm going to do the work and it, it's difficult because you that's the stuff behind the paywall and you're not hiding it but it's that if you try and share that stuff on the front end in your on your instagram or on your youtube people's attention spans are too short people aren't problem aware enough to realize that they actually need strategies more than tactics and everyone's looking for the the hack so from a content creation perspective i guess you've got to shake your booty and do what the the algorithm wants but then at the end say right you got some value from this however i'm afraid this little tactic isn't really going to solve your deep problems it's it's the surface level stuff um can you talk to us about i guess reconciling those two and how you picked a platform because it seems like you you went full in on youtube which as far as we're concerned is like the hardest platform to grow out of uh, out of everything youtube <laughs> i have this call it a character flaw but it's actually served me well and and i i'm less apologetic about it now but seeking out hard things because you can continue to, you won't get quick success on them I love it. Like I have a whole video on the channel where I tried to learn how to plate with something called a Moribashi chopstick. It's a very long metal tipped chopstick. And a lot of chefs and fine dining restaurants use tweezers to, to plate to plate because you can be precise and, and it kind of actually slows you down, which is actually kind of good because you're not just like haphazardly throwing things on the plate. You slow down and you more intentionally. Moribashis take years to understand how to master same thing with like asymmetric bevels on your knife where it's not just a clean 50 50 edge you do like an asymmetric ratio so you have 80 percent of the edge on one side and 20 percent of the edge on the other side i can't believe how deep all this stuff goes totally totally and (laughs) but but like (laughs) find the hard thing and make so i i I grew up uh playing tennis i'm going down a bit of a tangent here but I, i grew up playing tennis and there's this thing with racket head size and so if you have a 105 square inch head size, that is like a trampoline. Like anything that you swing at that thing, like it's going to go back over the other edge. You don't have to, uh, the other side, you don't have to generate that much power. Like you don't have to actually have that much finesse. Roger Federer's racket head size is 90. And so it's so much smaller because it's that much more difficult. You have to generate all the power yourself, but it allows you to be incredibly precise with your shots. Um, he has great net game because of that racket that he uses. It's just the reason people don't use a 90 square inch head racket, racket head size is because it's so hard to get good at using that piece of equipment. And so I would always, so like the racket head that I play with now is a 93 or something like that. I love it's kind of the principle of hard training. 
Totally, totally. Like I love hard stuff because if you can get good at the hard stuff, it will ultimately serve you in good times and in bad times. There's a, I'm going to do one more quick anecdote and then I'll, I'll, I'll answer your question. There's a guy that I worked with at Per Se named Anthony Yang. And he was the roast station chef de partie. So he was in charge of the ducks and the pork racks and, and the Wagyu beef and, and all of it's It's a very intense station because you have to nail temperatures on cooking protein 90 times out of a, a, in a night across the three dishes you have on your menu. So that's 270 times you have to nail temperature oh, high every single night out of the week. And so he, I was working with him one day and he, I was doing some prep for his station and he looked over at me and he said, you know, what's the difference? What, what, what was the quote? He was like, you know, what's the difference between us? Cause we were at per se, everybody has to wear black pants and black shoes and you all get a, a chef coat that says per se on the side and you're all wearing your blue apron and we're all in the uniforms. And he's like, you know, what's the difference between us and the guys that wear chili pepper pants? And I was like, what? And he's like, we can always go there. They can't always come work here. And that really stuck with me of like, if you seek out the hard stuff and you get really good at the, this is, this is too difficult. The uh, algorithm is too hard. I have to learn how to do video editing. I have to learn how to do titles and thumbnails. I have to buy a bunch of lighting equipment. Like if you get good there, so like now we can have conversations of, like my production assistant and I can talk about like, okay, let's finally start to think about doing TikTok stuff because we've done the hard stuff already. And that's like the going, and it's not like TikTok, like TikTok is growing into a behemoth and Yusuf, you and I have talked about TikTok is still a hard nut to crack, mm -hmm. but it's like, if you can get good at the hard stuff, when it comes to the like little tactical, like the easy win kind of stuff, it's going to feel easy because again, you're just talking call it like progressive overload kind of stuff like you've you've been so used to and anybody who's trained like this where you're doing like five rep sets and you're just doing like real close to your one rep max on whatever you're doing and then all of a sudden you switch to a more volume based kind of thing and you're doing like 20 20 rep sets Such it's like it just feels max but, yeah it just yeah. feels easier and so i would always kind of like seek out those types of things and it served me well and so like if anybody's listening and, and wants like that's potentially befuddles your excuse i think that's a, that that will that will serve you but youtube as a platform it just had staying power like it just i was asking myself in 2015 am i too late for youtube and that's a common trope like people will ask now like am i too late for whatever and certain platforms certainly have that but i think youtube the Lindy effect is just too strong with it at this point in time. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's so powerful with search. Uh, it's, it's, it's still like, I'm part of a YouTube beta testing program thing. And they like, they send me uh, surveys and, and they, I get on the phone with YouTube and they show me what new features are. And they're trying to get this thing rolled out, which is like content recommendations. This is, this is posted on YouTube studio. So it's, uh, my NDA is not violated here, but <laughs> They, they're, they're trying to get like, okay, people are searching for this idea and there's no content for it. So this is an underserved search oh, query. I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. So like you need to, we need more content. Like it, it's still so open. Like there, there, it's still, there's still room 
for for well, for any of this stuff. So what uh, the thing that blew my mind, and I, I guess like you you've picked a platform that has literally bil- like billions and billions of people on it, where like the thing that you because uh, how many subscribers are you at now? I'm almost at thirty thousand. Thirty okay, thirty thousand subscribers. And if I didn't, if I hadn't seen your subscriber base, and I just saw like, hey, I'm Justin. I teach the the demi skills, the kind of meta skills for people who are trying to accelerate their career in fine dining restaurants. I'd be like, whoa, that's a bit niche. Um, mm. Is there going to be enough people to? And you've got mm-hmm. thirty thousand highly engaged. It's not, you know, it's not even like one of these bloated thirty thousand channels. It's like the engagement on each of your videos is so high relative to the size of the channel mm. that like, you're like, whoa, actually like it's a big enough platform for that to be the case. And then, as you say, you've got the, the long, um, long-term benefit of creating something that then gets picked up on search and browse and everything else. Cause any, anything that you're going to do. So I, I did like film photography in high school and being, using a camera was very easy Uh, for me I I just naturally took to it and in a weird way I actually enjoy video editing a lot because it it mirrors cooking in some way shape or form where it's like you get your raw product and you do a little bit of processing to it Mm -hmm. and then you get to share it with people at the end like I, I draw a lot of similarities there but there's a who talks about this the kind of like I'm bringing up Tim again but it's like if you can do an endeavor where even if you fail, you come out the other side with skills that you can use in other things, it ends up ultimately being a good decision to make. Video editing for me was that. It was like, okay, I'm seeing all this success that people have. I I basically thought like, even if this flops, I will open a restaurant that will have a video component to it because I've learned these skills and I will know how to evaluate someone's performance that is a video editor for me on the other side, even if this is, and talk about any of us who have tried social media content creation. It's like, that's where you get stuck. Like if you can understand how to video edit, Mm. putting a filter on a photo or adding text to a graphic, it's like, that's all part of it. Like they're all nested under video editing. So it's like, well, if you can learn video editing, exactly. What's yep, that, yep, that yep. one with um, the, like Salt Bay and the the steaks and, the, you know, uh, uh, sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure from a culinary perspective, you're like, oh, but, but their video marketing is really good. So there it is. Talk about getting too successful too fast. I went to his restaurant in Dubai before he was Salt Bay. So he was, <laughs> I don't remember what his, he was just new, the chef of Nusret. And, that was such a funny meal because I I was taking kind of video, but I did the thing where um, I was already recording and they started slicing the steak and I pressed what I thought was record and I turned the recording off <laughs> during when he was cutting the steak and when we were eating it. So funny. We were so pissed because we spent like $450 on a single steak. It was my best oh, friend and I. Heartbreaking. And yeah, super bad. But he really struggled because he got so big on social media through the content that he was creating. And if you look at any of the reviews of a Nusret, whether it's in Dubai or he opened one up in New York, um, horrible, horrible reviews, like just not operationally sound at all. But he knew how to create flashy content. And now you see any of the TikTok food creators and they're slapping meat and throwing Wagyu around. It's, it's <laughs> wild. But yeah. Goodness me. Um, this has been a proper ride so thank you for talking us through this i think this is uh certainly inspiration to anyone who might think that their niche is too small or 
um, want, doesn't know where to, where to start in terms of taking their knowledge and expertise and turning it into a product. Have you got any advice for other people who are kind of going down this route? I think it comes down to really identifying what's the problem that I'm trying to solve. Like, can you articulate that? And for me, that was really difficult because, to your point, it seems a little niche. It seems a little bit just like esoteric. But can you distill it down to I, and there's like a templated sentence that you can maybe create for yourself, where it's like, I blank for blank in blank. So like the, and the last one is time. So it's like, who's your avatar? Really clearly articulate the problem. And then there's a time element. So we have, we had five modules for the Demi Skills course. So it was five weeks worth of content. Now with Total Station Domination, we've distilled it down into three weeks. And it's like, Again, I, I hate to keep plugging Hormozy again, but like he's provided a ton of awesome content and value. And he talks about like part of his value equation is time. And so it's like, how quickly are you going to deliver this information? Because a lot of us probably fall in this trap of, oh, I need to have on the landing page that it's 18 hours of supplemental bonus content or, mm. you know, 17 modules of whatever, whatever, whatever. And in what other world do you go to a YouTube video and someone's like, well, I'm going to give you the thing, but you have to watch my seven video series in order to finally get to the nugget of the, the idea. It's like, no, like give it to me quickly. Like give it, give it to me in an expedite. Like, and, and if you can answer that question, then it's ultimately just a question of, do you have the skill set or the ability to delegate this out to somebody else to build this whether it's an app or a video series or a audio thing or an ebook or, or do you have the skills to ultimately create a product based on this thing? But I wish I would have done that sooner. The identify what the actual problem is that you're trying to solve here. Cause that's what I got to with total station nomination was like, Oh, well, what I'm really, I, I had so many subtitles, man, of this, of this course. I was like, Oh, well, it's going to be called adaptive kitchen productivity. And I'm going to be the kitchen productivity guy. And I'm going to teach everybody about how to be adaptable and blah, 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 blah. And it's but like the fact that you tested so many titles means that yeah. you're thinking so deeply about the problem. Yep. Because there's a great focus group of 30,000 people that I have the luxury or the privilege of being able to, to market to, but if that was all I was potentially going after, that's not enough. Like it, it just run the numbers on what your funnel is going to look like. And that's just not going to be enough people to, to over time. Like if I want to do this for five, 10 years, that's not enough people. And so does this, as we're kind of like getting overwhelmed with kind of like the content that we're all able to scroll through these days, like, does this actually make someone stop and say, Oh, cool. Like th this is interesting. Like this is something that's for me. And getting that sentence, I also had the luxury of like, I had put out a piece of content on uh, Total Station Domination two, three years ago, because it's a it's a thing that one of my best friends who I worked with picked up from a three Michelin restaurant in uh, in three Michelin star restaurant in, Chicago, in California that he worked at. And one of his coworkers would say that right before service. So it was like, he'd look at his station super set up and he'd be like, oh, TSD, like Total Station Domination. And I made a video about it and it 
kind of took off. It, it's not like one of my highest performing videos on the channel, but I got to this place where I would have people message me and be like, thank you so much for the content that you've put out. This has really helped me in my career, blah, 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 blah. And what maybe some of your listeners can take away from this is not me flexing that that happens to me. It's I would follow up with what's been most helpful. Like, thank you so much for saying that. But I'm curious of all the content that I've put out there, what actually is stuck with you? Mm-hmm. And over time, over time, over time, everybody just res- I did a whole Instagram story on this the other day. People are just saying TSD, like TSD stuck with me, like this concept of perfect organization you're going to war with bullets. Everything is perfectly in order. All your little trays are nulled and just like perfect, like, you know, layout is, is superb. I was like, oh, well, uh, maybe, I should just, yeah, maybe I should just call it that because <laughs> that's ultimately like what I'm talking about. So, Amazing. yeah, yeah. Well, that makes sense. How do we find out more about you? If so someone... the modern hospitality company is called Repertoire. And that's based on, oh, I have it, but it's kind of buried under some other books. There's an old French book called Le Repertoire de la Cuisine. And it's a 250-page book, but the subtitle of the, of the cover says that there's 5,000 recipes in those 250 pages. And the reason it's, it's laid out like that is because every recipe is not one onion, one shallot, one whatever. It's just a sentence. So it will say something to the effect of hollandaise and then a hyphen. And then it says clarified butter emulsified with egg yolks and vinegar and whatever. And so it's a reference book for people. And so it's understood that you have a well-developed repertoire to use that book. And so that's ultimately what I'm trying to push for is to get a bunch of hospitality creators to a place where they just have a good repertoire of skills that I've taught them over time, over products, over um, what have you. And so the, the website's called joinrepertoire.com. I'm on almost all platforms at Justin Kana. Uh, you guys will probably have it linked in the show notes. And sure. uh, yeah, just get in touch with me on Twitter. I have justinkana.com. I don't think there's a contact form there because I'd just prefer for you to email me <laughs> or Twitter DM me or Instagram DM me. Uh, and yeah, I just really appreciate what you two have built and the help and services that you provide to coaches and freelancers and creative people who are trying to productize what they know. And yeah, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have built what I've built so far without your guys' help. So thank, thank you both. Well, thanks thanks, man. You, you smashed it. You, you brought the, you brought the goods. So that, that is great to see. Um, the final thing I wanted to ask you. You've probably seen it, but there's a film called Boiling Point. Mm-hmm. Have you watched it? Is that the Bradley Cooper one? Oh. It's Stephen Graham. Boiling Point. British film. Oh, it's very uh, like niche, this just came quite out. niche British, British cinema. So yeah, this, this just came out. I don't think I have seen this. Justin, Hot- oh. you must watch this film. Oh, this is, uh, what's his face? No, it's not. Okay, hang on. I'm going to basically gonna open this. just for people listening. It's saying yeah. it's filmed in a single take and it's a 90 minute film about a shift in a restaurant on opening night and the Oof. food standards hygiene hygiene agency come and do an inspection and then there's someone might have an allergy and then there's like all these things and and it's like someone doesn't turn up for work and and it's it's all complete there's no cuts. It's all filmed on like one so like as you're watching it you feel stressed 
for the cameraman and for the sound guy and everything. Um, but also it's just, I mean, I've never worked in the kitchen, but it, it felt like working in a hospital. It felt like working in accident and emergency. Um, so I, I would love to hear your thoughts on uh, on how you feel about watching that film. If you're I, feeling... I, I need to do like a reacts video. Like I yeah, just 100%. Need to do like a, that, would, like a, that would be great. That'd be perfect. That, that's why, and, and I have a friend who actually bashed my tagline that I had for myself for a while, which was, I help chefs perform better. That was kind of the tagline that I that I set. And the reason that I use the word perform is, again, because I see more similarities with chefs with musicians and athletes than I do with creatives. And to your point about that movie, it's not about being able to make a sauce for one single person or make it for the chef de cuisine to taste on your station. It's about on that night when you've just opened and there's a critic on table 13 and the health department's there and your station partner didn't show up for work today and the chef de cuisine didn't get enough sleep the night before and his wife told him some backhanded comment that he's come into work pissed off about. You basically predicted the film there. Totally, totally. (laughs) Like, that's when it matters. Like, that's when you want to be able to perform. And a lot of chefs... Anybody, like anybody who works in a, in a high-stress environment, like you get really good at the Tuesday at 3 p.m. where it's like there's no stress, there's nothing matters. But it's like if you can pull it through in that moment, in that night, like those are make-or-break moments. Like those are the things that like the, the in, in the multiverse, like that's the crossroads where it's like you're either going to get the glowing five-star review and like th- Thomas Keller's success in the U.S. market, it would have come eventually. But a lot of people point it back to one meal that one food writer had from the San Francisco Chronicle. Her name was Ruth Reichel, and she had a meal at the French Laundry where she wrote, this is the most exciting restaurant to eat at in the U.S. And that catapulted everything. And so it's like there was something that happened in that kitchen on that day where a performance happened, like high performance. And so it's like that's what you're trying to optimize for is performing better it's not necessarily like any of these again talking about tactical stuff but that's why i would really lean into that phrase because i'm so Mm. obsessed with that idea of perform like it's such a good mental model of Mm -hmm. if you can get your one rep max up as high as possible then tuesday at 3 p.m is such a low percentage of your max that yeah why would you even be stressed yeah 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 so amazing anyways Justin, it's been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you both. And Thanks for coming we'll on. We'll talk soon. Yeah, thank you. Well, well, here we are together again at the end of another episode of the Repertoire Podcast. If this is your first time listening, this is a show for hospitality creators who want to think better, increase their performance, and believe that it's possible to take lessons from what others have already learned. I am your host, Justin Kana, and if you're new here, I'd like to personally welcome you to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Friendly heads up to check out the show notes inside of the description of this podcast if you want to check out previous guests, links to specifics that got brought up in this episode, as well as other helpful content that we created 
create and share here online because everything we do is focused on helping you along your journey. If you don't have a ton of time, the best place to start is with some value sent straight to your inbox every single week. It's called the Repertoire Newsletter, where we share knowledge on sharpening your skills, asymmetric upside, and exploring the industry beyond the status quo. If you subscribe, we'll keep you up to date on trends that are shaping the hospitality creator ecosystem. We'll share discounts on gear that we find, as well as content that we've been producing ourselves and helpful articles that we've already read and decided are worth your time. Last up, if you want to connect with other industry professionals in the Repertoire Pro community, you want to check out courses like Total Station Domination or download free tools that we've created, you can learn more at joinrepertoire.com. That's J-O-I-N-R-E-P-E-R-T-O-I-R-E.com. The only ask from me is that if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate a review of this show on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify to help the podcast universe know that people like us like shows like this. Regardless, I'll see you in the next episode. My name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.